Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and I'm joined by my co-host Shane Douglas Keene and Laurel Hightower. And tonight, we're excited to welcome back Laird Barron um, to talk a little bit about his upcoming new uh, Isaiah Coleridge novel, Worse Angels, which will be out on Tuesday. I think it is May 26th. So, uh, how are you, Laird? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for uh, for having me back. Um, it's really nice to be back on the on the air here with you, uh, chatting about books. Uh, hey, before I forget, because I will forget, Gabino said to tell you hi, man. So hi from Gabino Iglesias. Oh well, right back at him. Um, that's a great writer, great reviewer. Yeah, I'm uh, really stoked. I have the great honor of being invited to uh, attend his workshop next month, and super super happy about that. Yeah, he's he's a very interesting man. I mean, he, like I said, excellent writer, excellent re- reviewer. Um, you know, he brings something to the review game. You know, I reviewed for Locus, uh, the magazine, the industry magazine, a few years ago, and you know, pretty briefly, you know, for like six eight months, whatever it was. But I always had an appreciation for people who have a sense of style with their reviews, and he yeah. says, you do, he does. There's several others I could name, but he, he in particular. And then, you know, and on top of that, he's, um, you know, putting together these workshops and whatnot. The guy works very hard. And he's a sweetheart. He's major sweetheart. Um, and uh, I had something else I was going to add to that, but I don't remember what it is. So um, I'll shut the hell up about uh, Gabino for now. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, he is he is the role model that uh, I followed, I studied his reviews, and I still do when I first started over and over and over again because I wanted to grow up to be him, you know, so. <laughs> no, they're they're excellent, and they, they make you want to read whatever it is he's talking about, which is, I think, you know, the vividness yeah. of the reviews. I'm always, I, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, reviewers that, that can do that. There were, there were a couple reviewers for, um, for locusts who can do that i just you know there's a lot of good reviewers but there's not that many reviewers that bring that kind of sort of vividness to it and i always you know i always appreciate that um yeah me too and th- and that is in the end that is the intent you know when you review a book that you enjoyed you want people to tell you they bought it you know and so he does that very well yeah so so, uh, Laird, um, I know the last time we had you on, um, one of the things that we talked about was kind of how the uh, the Coleridge novels were going to start kind of gearing towards like meshing, you know, the crime side with the weird side. And I just wanted to start off by saying like that was one of the things because um, you announced this book, too, I think, on that episode. Um, that was one of the things I was looking forward to. And I just finished it the other day and. I really love how you brought that together. Um, and, you know, I'm sure my co-host can chime in, but um, I'm curious to see, like, how people respond to it. Because, like, I was expecting the weird, but the one thing that kind of took me off guard was kind of how much, like, it creeped me out. Like, <laughs> there was parts of it that definitely, like, gave me chills. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, you know, initially, when I first, when I wrote the first Coleridge uh, novel blood standard there's never you, you know you you can hope you, you can you can lay the foundations and 
and hope for the best, but there's no, you, you can't presume that there'll be another book, you know, especially in a series. You can't presume that there's going to be a follow-up or that you'll even sell the first one. And so my intention, you know, initially was just to do straight crime. And I think Blood Standard is pretty, you know, there are little hints in it, but they're pretty tame compared to what I'm capable of inflicting on people. And uh, and Black Mountain, of course, uh, for various personal reasons, slid a little farther into, like, you know, uh, Silence of the Lamb or Red Dragon yeah. territory. Not, not at all on the plot or even the the mood, but just that kind of that feel. Yeah. yeah. You know, which is well, it's still well within the accepted boundaries of crime and mystery and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that was partially, I think we talked about it on the show. I, my dog was yeah. in a bad way and she made it through, you know, me writing the book, but then not too long after, but I just, I was exhausted. And one thing that I know how to do, I know how to write a horror, a horror story, crime, a straight crime novel was something that I was, you know, and I'm still learning uh, the ropes, but I leaned a lot heavier, more heavily into um, what, what I can do almost reflexively. And, it, it, you know, it still stayed within the boundaries. Worse Angels is a, you know, I mean, I just have to admit, part of what motivates the the tone of Worse Angels is my dog died. Uh, and this is the first major, major project I've done. I've written some stories, and I've written essays and whatnot, but this is the first novel that I wrote. Uh, without her and I have to admit I just you know I just I'm not the same person that wrote the first two nah nah so and so basically I had to I was I wrote a I, I was interviewed recently and I, I guess it'll appear soon but I was talking about grief and how grief is if it burns hot enough it's kind of like a, I was in Montana a few years ago visiting my brother and there had been a forest fire there the year before and of course, in Montana, everything just grows back rapidly. But nonetheless, you're walking around and just right outside his house, he lived up in the mountains at the time. Uh, there are trees standing, and they're burnt. They're just 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 miles of trees that are that are. And some have even had a little bit of green on them after. I guess maybe it had been two years, but you know, it was still within it was still within a pretty short, geologically speaking, a pretty short period of time. And I remember just walking through there and how the fire had burnt through everything, and, and things were going back, but it was different. Uh, it was never the landscape was never going to be the same, and that's kind of how I felt feel about grief. If it's deep enough and it burns hot enough, you'll recover. Um, if you don't die, you'll recover. But you're not the same, and yeah. you know you may come back stronger, but you're just not going to be the same. And so I didn't even try. Uh, with worse angels, you know, I still I still limited what how far into the supernatural aspect I would I would overtly delve, but it's it's definitely I mean it's a horror novel as much as it is a is a mystery novel. There's no question. The moment we've all been waiting for, really. I mean, because the Croatoan yeah. pushed it really close to that edge, you know, and uh, we were all we were excited when we talked to you last time, as Rich said, because you mentioned that it was going to start getting weirder, and uh, I've read a lot of your stuff that fringes crime and horror and you're really fucking good at getting it weirder <laughs> well thank you <laughs> yeah i also really i i felt like the you know the love of the dog and and that sort of thing just really wove 
excellently into this storyline here with, you know, the way that Isaiah feels about it. And there's, you know, there's Minerva and there's a lot of references back to Achilles and, and a, there's a great line in there that I'm going to, I'm going to mess up, but that's just, you know, it's like, if you lose the love of a dog, that's, you know, that's, that's the end basically. I just, I really, really loved that. And I thought that was, I, I know, cause I had listened to the original episode with the guys, you know, that that was going on. And I just, I, I felt like that was just very touchingly woven in here with Isaiah's story storyline here. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I think I remember the scene you're talking about. He's, it was either when he was having a, a nightmare about Wero, the God of the, the dead. And he was talking about how his dog, had kind of gone over to that guy. I mean, he feels a lot of guilt about the dog. It, 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 it makes, it's not one of those things where you have to read the first one, but it's like anything else. It's pretty, it's becoming increasingly impossible to tell the stories and have them be completely stand, you know, um, stand on their own with every detail like that. But uh, yeah, he, he, you know, he feels pretty guilty about the dog dying. Uh, it wasn't really his fault, but you know, he put, he put an animal in harm's way and, Coleridge isn't really, in my, you know, my view of him, he's, he's not uh, necessarily a soft touch when it comes to animals. He likes his steak, rare, but he's just, and he, and he will put, put a dog in danger if it's part of what they're doing, but he just, he does love, he, you know, he loves who he loves, and uh, he loved, you know, he loved that dog. And of course, he loves the dog he has now, but to me, that was just something that I, you know, that that is something that, I've never experienced it, but you can lose the love of people, but you lose the love of a dog. I, I can't think of anything. Uh, even in your imagination, you know, you're, you're, you're like looking back. Like, could I have done more? That type of thing. You know, that, I can't think of any. For me, I personally can't think of anything worse. Every, everybody says, you know, you have a first-person narrator, and but you can't kill them. Well, I've, I've actually killed my first-person narrators more, more, more often than not in the short fiction, but you know touche it's a, it's a series but you can do you other horrible things can happen to him and to me as somebody who's kind of looked down the barrel a couple times of the reaper i uh there are things worse than death by far and uh that that would be one of them in, in my book oh i agree man entirely that's uh that's a loss that doesn't go away i mean you get better with it you know more comfortable but you don't ever you'd like you say you're never the same again um but you're good at taking that emotion and informing your story with it uh, and that's i mean that's a big one for you in all of your stories is that emotion um it's like i mean i know coleridge is a hard ass but at the same time coleridge is a really, really, really human character, as is Meg and Lionel, and you know, and uh, that's a focus that I think that I was wanting to ask about you, and don't know if I did last time, which was how much are you consciously thinking about the emotional aspects, or just constantly thinking about what you know about the characters, and it just kind of flows that way. Oh, it's a combination of things. Um, I. And I think like we all, you know, we're all writers. I, I think you understand what I'm getting at when I say you go through phases when you when you work on a project and there's the white heat of creation. And then there's a the cool down period. And then there's a period where you're hammering away on that metal. And then there's a period where you toss the whole thing aside and you start over again. And 
so that there are parts of it that are, at least for me, that are premeditated and very calculated, and there are parts that shock me. I, you know, if I work on a piece and I don't get shocked at least once, uh, or at least mildly surprised, I guess, I'm, you know, I, I feel like I haven't done something. I'm missing something in it. It, it doesn't have to be profound. Uh, if anything I've ever written could be called that, it's just that there has to be something that's just purely authentic in it and that isn't a calculation. Uh, and cause I think that's what makes the rest of it work. And so the emotion that Coleridge feels is very much, it is very much real. It's, it's just how I choose to allow him to express it or how, you know, how I express it, uh, how much of it, where that's the calculation. Cause you know, it, it's still a commercial novel and I'm, I'm fully aware that, I made conscious choices in it, uh, especially after the first half. There's like about a third kind of like just at, right around the halfway point. There's a third where there's a part where things slow down a lot. And that was a conscious decision. And one that I knew isn't it's kind of counter to the, the etiquette of or a protocol for writing this kind of a novel. It's not there's anything wrong with it, but it certainly it's not um, what a lot of writers would do. And I did it anyway. I. I'm kind of stubborn in that regard. It was important to me to focus on the characters. Uh, Lionel has a lot, you know, more in this one, I think, in some regard, uh, regards. And uh, I didn't get as much about Meg as I wanted, but, you know, she still has still has a little bit going on. And I just, I don't know, I felt those parts, I don't know, if, I don't know, you know, if 10 years I would go, oh, gosh, I should have, I should have, have done it differently. But right now I'm really happy with it. You know, I, I looked at the book the other day. Um, one of the bookstores sent me. I don't even have my author copies yet, but a bookstore sent me, um, you know, several boxes to sign. And I usually wince when I look at anything I've ever published. I, all I see are the flaws uh, initially. And I, you know what? I'm sure it's riddled with flaws, but it. I'm really happy with this. I was happy when I when I finished it. Uh, it was a tough one to write, but I but I was actually kind of pleased with it while I was writing. Uh, it didn't come easily whatsoever, but I felt like the end result, you know, I don't know whether it works as a thriller like it should, but I think it works as a Laird Barron novel. And I'm, you know, I, at this point, I'm very, I'm very proud of it. And part of the reason I'm proud of it is because uh, I focus so much on on the the smaller details about some of the characters. I feel like that is something that I'm really I'm really happy that I did it. And that's actually was one of the notes that I had on here was one of the scenes that I really loved. And, and actually, I don't know, I feel like seasonally, too, it was really appropriate. You know, it's like Christmas. So they kind of take a moment to just all kind of be together. And that's very central to that season anyway. Um, and then, you know, the with Meg breaking down, um, you know, the themes and Halloween and, and all that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. I mean, that was great. You know, she those those insights were fantastic. I I just I love that part. Oh, thank you. Meg's the smartest of the group. <laughs> I think Howard <laughs> yeah. says, you know, she's the brains of the outfit. Uh, and he's not, you know, it's not lip service. She is, you know, as as things go on, as I tell more stories, it's, it's that he tries to keep her. She's wary anyway because of her past situations, but she's not an idiot. She understands. At some point, you know, you, basically you kind of get the feeling that he's revealed a lot of what he has, his past to her. And... He's really, but he's really reluctant 
to expose her to the full, you know, force of, of what, of what goes on in his life. And, you know, depending on what happens in the future with, with, with these, you know, with the series, um, we'll see, we'll see. But my problem is, is that there's a certain thread of, you know, it, as over the top as these are, and they're designed to be adventure more than, than literary slice of life by far. I mean, this is, this is consciously, this series is consciously, you know, pulpy with, with a, with a literary, with a little bit of a literary, uh, you know, sensibility to inform it. But I cannot get away from the fact that things just become more and more dicey for the people around him. A lot, a lot of crime stuff ignores or, or really dramatizes. They kind of go one way or the other, but it's really easy to try to just pretend that enemies won't or ignore the fact that enemies might just decide eventually, well, let's just go after the family. That'd be the easiest way to deal with it. And the way that I've, I've kind of been able to work with that so far is, 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 is for me, one of the biggest and most important elements of, or maybe intriguing elements of Coleridge is that people don't want to destroy him. I mean, yes, there are some who do and he gets into dicey situations, but there's also very, very powerful forces that want to control him. And, you know, uh, that, that, that gives me a little more chess to play, a little more, a little more leeway to how these forces will, will manipulate him rather than just brute, you know, threatening his, threatening his family right off the bat type of thing. So I get to, I get to play with this and I get to kind of, he just gets deeper and deeper as, as things happen. And so that kind of kills a couple birds with one stone. But nonetheless, as, as this goes on, you know, there's going to be a crisis. I just don't see any way around a crisis point for Polridge's life as an investigator and his past life as a hitman to really endanger his life as a family man. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's a, Oh, go ahead, Shane. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, I forgot. Never mind. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I was just going to say that's a pretty interesting point. Um, cause one of the things that I noted about, uh, this book and that I liked was, you know, kind of, the change that you kind of see with him. Like when I started reading these books, I kind of viewed him, like you said, as kind of just like a badass. And like one of the common things you see in like stories like this, like someone who might have ties to like organized crime or a dangerous, you know, profession and stuff like that is kind of like, you know, their rule is usually like, you know, don't get attached to anybody because, that creates weakness. So I thought it was cool to kind of see him, you know, kind of veer out of that past that he was, you know, known for and kind of, you know, start to become that family man and see him change that way. But also kind of how you played with him, like his physical things, like, you know, a lot of these people want to try and control him because he's kind of just like a brute force, but I thought it was cool that you kind of started to hint at, you know, that this that part of his life is finally catching up with him and taking a toll like on his body and, you know, how that might affect him going forward. Like he seems like a very confident guy, but it seems like he's aware of his mortality and, you know, maybe, you know, these things might start to put doubts in his abilities. I don't know if that's, you know something that will happen but that's you know something that i thought about no me too and it's that's very intentional that's been a plan from the start you know once i had the two book deal 
I said, okay, then I can start thinking about the third book or, you know, later books and what would this look like? And, you know, one thing that I've said from the start, and these things change, you know, obviously I didn't really in, in, initially intend to, for it to go this far into the, into the supernatural, but there's, there's multiple reasons for that. Uh, and I'm not bothering to get into them, but there are, there are some reasons that are not just, it's not just my mood. Um, sales have something to do with it, reviews, just stuff that people have responded to more positively. And and now that I've gotten, you know, kind of my feet under me writing this kind of thing, uh, I mean, Blood Standard was only really my second full-length novel. So, you know, I, I'm, it's not like, I you know, I have a bunch of novels under my belt even now. I think I have five. Um, and I'm, so I'm starting to get blooded, but, I you know, I still feel like, I, you know, compared to writing short stories, I really have... A, I really in my own head have a lot, a lot to, to deal with, but you know, I just, I always plan though, uh, for his mortality to be an issue. And, and it's kind of ironic. It's a, there's like a paradox going on here because there's something else, especially now that I'm, I've, I've just said the hell with it. I'm going to, I'm going to go much farther, you know, in, into that supernatural direction. You know, there's stuff going on with Coleridge that, uh, you know, He's not like a, he's not a regular person by any means, but he is mortal and he does suffer. And um, if I do enough books, there, there will you know each book takes you know takes you forward at least a year, and some of them will probably jump forward farther than that. And so there, there's a finite. I have a finite vision, you know, for how long the series, how many books the series would would would, would encompass. And um, you know we're talking seven to nine to ten, you know, somewhere in there. It's a, there's a story, there's an overarching story, and there will be an end. And um, if we get that far, when we get that far, you know, Coleridge is going to be uh, not in the prime of his life by any means. And he's one of those guys, as I have learned last couple of years, uh, I had a pretty rough, you know, nothing like him, but I, I destroyed my body with blue collar work. And I'm now, you know, at 50, I am definitely noting it. And, uh, and so I can extrapolate what his life will be like at 50, at 60, and it's not physically, it's not pleasant. Yeah, that. Uh, go ahead, Laurel. I was just gonna say it's because I'm sure like one of the one of the comparisons you probably hear is to Jack Reacher, you know, the late child novels, and and I feel like that's something that's just like it's just never addressed in that, you know, and I feel like Coleridge is so much more. I don't know, human. And, and I really just, I like this element of it. It's the humanity of it. It's the fact that you're not going to be able to take that beating without there being, you know, an effect on you. And it's something that I like seeing explored because, you know, what does that do to the psyche of somebody who has lived forever on their strength, on their ability to just be the biggest brute force in the room? No, you're right. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I, I appreciate the observation and I, I, I that's kind of how I see it that that sets him apart you know he's comparisons to you know if he were 20 pounds lighter he'd be he'd be compared to, to parker or, or to spencer uh, parker's creation you know it, it's inevitable he's going to be compared to jack reach or you know whatever uh there's not you know I, I outside of just not writing him i didn't really know how to escape that except just a regular baron character and you know, Jack Reacher is a is a lead child character. He's not not aware, and, and Isaiah Coleridge is definitely. If you read both of them, uh, you you know, beyond the surface, there's just not 
they're not the same. And I can vouch for that. Yeah, I've read all the all the Lee Child books, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Well, I, you know, I'm I actually I I've addressed this in, in a couple essays, but I, you know I could or interviews. One thing, you know, I've written about seventy, like right around seventy stories. I think I published, and a chunk of those are novellas. You know, long. Uh, so it's probably closer to 100, you know, it's probably closer to 100, 120 stories even. But um, one of the, you know, I have several veins that I, or threads that I, I really come back to. Uh, and one of them is, of course, the, the tough guy, or in Jessica Mace's case, the tough woman. And one thing I have learned, though, that there's sort of this um, infinite variety. It's not really infinite, but it may as well be. There's like, almost as infinite variety, no matter what the subject is. You'll never, you'll never stop coming up with something new to say about, about love or, or hate or just the human condition in general. And I think, obviously, stories about pulpy tough guys are, by, you know, by comparison, are much more limited. I could still, though, write the rest of my life and not, if I do it correctly, there's, there's just still going to be variation. And Coleridge is uh, the, and I think I mentioned this last time, I consider him kind of like a synthesis of a lot of these hard-boiled lead characters that I've written about, you know, these arm breakers and Pinkerton agents and, and secret agents and and whatnot uh, in the past. And he's sort of the synthesis of those characters. Like, he's the, he really is the best of his type that I know how to write at this point. And, um, and so I, I, I feel like there, you know, that he, that I've done a lot to separate him from some of the other similar characters. Of course, on the surface, he's gonna, you're gonna draw all kinds of comparisons to, to any number of, of of tough guys in this in this line. But I just think, you know, especially now with the um, with, with the supernatural component, there's not a lot of writers that are doing that. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got the Parker series and all that, but it's just even this is even different than that and so um that's one thing i am i am very confident about i'm very i'm very happy to be doing i I feel like this is mine and um if i as i write more of these they'll become more more pronounced that it's mine that's really that's what i got out of it too is like just between even i mean i just feel like he continues to grow into that you know and i'm sure that's part of it is you 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 know getting more familiar with him and being able to expand upon him. But yeah, I just, I, I really like that aspect of it. Just the kind of like what comes next, because, you know, a lot of us get to that point and like, Hey, you know, we're not, we're not the age anymore of the, of the prime characters. So, you know, we don't, we like to know what happens next. We like to know that the story doesn't end. Well, right. That it's not just episodic also. Right. I mean, I, I yes. love the Spencer yeah. I grew up with the Spencer series, you know, in my teens, I started reading Spencer and Spencer does, there is a little bit of continuity, but it really takes a backseat to the episodic nature. And, you know, like just what you said a minute ago, I mean, I'm sure you see it in your writing, right? The idea that if you stick, if you stick with a character for a while, you really will learn, you really will learn new things about that character. If you, you may not write them, like you may be, maybe you're writing a series, you know, something like Parker, you know, uh, Parker did where he's like, well, I'm never going to give you too many details. Cause I've been warned about that. You know, don't pin yourself down with too many details. 
because it kind of goes against the episodic nature of some of these series. And I blithely, of course, you know, <laughs> ignore that and give you all kinds of details that I'm now stuck with. But, you know, like you were saying, though, you do, you stick with a character and you learn, you learn things. And, Cole, you know, I've written about, Jessica Mace is the only other character that I've written about consistently, story after story. And, you know, comparatively, I've written almost nothing about her. I have five stories and they probably average about 8,000 words a piece. I've got about 40,000 words invested in her. Coleridge now, it's, uh, you know, these books average around a little bit over 80, so I have over a quarter million words that I've lived with Coleridge. And that's a, you know, this is new for me. This is something I've not, I've not experienced before. And I'm learning, you know, I'm learning a lot about this guy. And, I'm, and also, you learn about people, you learn about your protagonist through his, through the, the cast that surrounds him. You learn all kinds of things about that person through their loved ones and their enemies and their and their confidants um, and the people that they do business with on a routine basis. And that's kind of something we covered last time is that as you're discovering that stuff, a lot of that happens organically for you, right? You're kind of a pantser. Yes. Yeah. 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 That, that's fascinating to me when I read your work and it's so freaking well-structured and it's like, how the hell do you just make that up? <laughs> you, know, you you didn't you didn't build a frame first man how did you do that well i rewrite right i mean that's oh, that's yeah. the cool thing you can't really tell the difference between someone who is sort of extemporaneous versus someone who meticulously plots i mean unless assuming that both are you know you know organized writers and edit properly the editing you know that's a secret but that's just how i approach writing in general i i um like this series, I have a lot more. Like I, I have, oh, at least twenty pages of maybe thirty pages of notes for possible future books, stories, scenes, anywhere from a sentence to a paragraph to like you know to like a chapter uh, that are just random things that may or may not ever appear. But it's just like I'll come up with an idea and I'll say, well, what if Coleridge is sitting in a room and he's, you know, he's chatting with this couple and they. You know, they've hired him to do something. You're not really sure, and they're having this, this sort of genial chat. And then at some point, he reveals, you know, he goes, "I know that you, I know you killed your wife," and and I got that from um, it was just a scenario that I just picked up from watching the the terrible real life situation where the the woman went to Hawaii, got remarried, uh, and nobody knows where her kids are. It's all over the news. A couple months ago, still haven't found her kids. You know, they suspect the worst. Her husband died her, a few months before this, before the kids, before she fled and the kids had disappeared. Uh, her, her brother killed her husband in self-defense and he mysteriously died. And then she married a guy like just weeks after all this and his wife had died like two months before. Uh, and it's just, it goes on and on like that. And there's a lot of you know questions about insurance and all that. And I could just see Coleridge and they're living in Hawaii and they finally got arrested. But, um, I could just see a scenario, though, where Coleridge or Lyon or somebody like that is just having dinner with them and then, you know, start <laughs> laying it on them. I mean, this life is life is crazy and it doesn't take much to tweak it and make it work in a, you know, as a as a, as a scenario for these guys. Really? Because you really couldn't make what you just told us up. No, it's and yeah. I, and I'm not remembering all of it. I'm just paraphrasing. Yeah. So I, so the point the point is, is that. The way I. My all my work, or the vast majority of my work, 
has kind of existed within a couple universes, you know, in my mind, there's a couple realities, there may be a third one. Uh, but, but essentially there's two, there, there, there's, you know, the old each reality. And then there's like sort of the Imago sequence reality and all this stuff happens in them. And I jot down some notes and things, but once I've written about a character, yeah, I have to make sure and go back and check like what, what, how old was the brother, you know, that kind of thing. What year did I say? But one thing I don't have to worry about is what they're going to do because generally speaking, yeah, there's some surprises, which I really welcome. I kind of, you know, as I'm growing to know these characters, it seems pretty obvious to me how they would react to a situation. Like when the situation presents itself, I have like, I free, it's freeze frame. You know, what do you think happens next? And there's a variety of things that could happen. And uh, it, it's becoming easier with, with, with these guys because I know them better and better. And uh, um, yeah. I think, oh, sorry, go ahead, Shane. Uh, I was just going to say um, that where you were talking about kind of living in two or three different universes, um, I think uh, readers who who are paying attention pick up on that, too. I know I know that I've always felt that way, like this guy is coming from several different places here, you know, so you, that's effective. That was all Laurel. Well, I was I was just going to say, because, you know, I always get on this outlining thing, but I. I think I, I like what you said about, you know, it's like the the more that you know the characters, the 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 easier it is to know, you know, how each situation is going to play out because the the more intimately you know them, the better you know how they're going to react to things. So I almost think like, you know, more than more than like a structured outline of you know where you're going to go from A to B to C to all the way to the end, if you know your characters, then you know, then you can go with them. Agreed. And I find for myself, especially, you know, I'm not exactly prolific, but I, I, I am amassing a body of work. And I do worry about things like, very, you know, stuff you don't have to worry about in an individual story. You have to worry about when that story is collected with 20 or 10 other stories. Uh, and people read them all back to back. Uh, it, it changes things. Um, so, so it's like a metagame going on. I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of things when I'm, when I'm writing something. It's never in a void. Uh, even if it may look like that when I'm done, I was I was worried about how it was going to reflect on other other stories. But what I was going to say is, the way it works for me, maybe the most important component of this is I know when when to to do something surprising. Then, so if I know what Coleridge is likely to do or how Lionel is likely to react, for example, or Meg, uh, I know also how to organically and plausibly throw a loop into that have a character react in a way that you didn't expect and but but because i know so much about them once we go a little farther it, it's totally plausible you're like oh okay i didn't know this other thing about him which means when he or she reacted what seemed to be not necessarily out of character but in a surprising fashion it totally makes sense now but you but you can't do that unless you know your characters really well uh or i guess you can but it just Knowing them so well now after three books, uh, it makes that a, a lot easier to pull off, I think. If I could just interject real quick, uh, I was going to tell you, Lor Laurel is uh, our Meg. She's the brains of this bunch here. That's <laughs> 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 why well, she no, asked I... the smart questions. <laughs> no, it's, it's more one of those things, and this is something that's been fun for me because it's been a um, – it's evolved what you know my opinion on it is like i 
I have been very gung ho about outlines because my first couple of books that I wrote were such a mess, you know, and and I didn't outline at all. And it cost me a lot of revision time. And so now I'm very like, yeah, I like to outline. But, you know, in kind of like peddling that back, it just doesn't work in every situation and for every writer, you know, so I'm I've I've kind of started to try to be more observant on how that kind of thing works. And and I think the character thing, I, I think that is just really that that's a that's a necessity. Because, um, yeah, it's I mean, it's like you said, because I was thinking about, you know, there's a scene with with Lionel where, you know, you as as the writer, you as the creator of Lionel knows what his background is, his family is, but nobody else does, you know, so it makes some of his behavior a little bit of a wild card. Um, right. But yeah, it's, you know, it's something that can be very organic from from the creation because it's, you know, it's what you know about him. Well, two things. One, I you pretty much are saying about outlines what I've what I think, uh, what I believe, um, which is better. I, I I use them when I need them. And I, I did use an outline for the first Coleridge novel. It was it was more of a bullet point outline, but I did chart a path uh, and it, I deviated from it. But I do think everything's different. And I no two, no two writers, pardon me, I'm trying to cough here. Uh, no two writers are the same. I mean, we just, I mean, it's a trite observation, but it's, it's absolutely true. And I feel like it kind of needs to be addressed periodically because everybody's looking for advice, you know, especially newer writers are always looking for advice. And so if you're looking for advice, okay, well, there's, there's something that's really important to know is that it's okay to do things your way. You know, I, I, I wholly endorse the idea of reading uh, you know, the, the, you're studying the methods of as many people as it, as you can. Uh, you never know what it's like throwing mud at the wall. You don't know what's going. If you don't know where you are as a writer or what you, what who you are as a writer, then that may be a method of helping you find it. But there's just not. It, it, it's kind of confusing, maybe. Uh, but I, but I find it to be hopeful that you, you aren't stuck doing it one way or the other, and you're not doing it wrong. Uh, the only the only the only thing you could ever do that's wrong is if uh, you don't do what, what seems to be working for you. You know, if, if you allow yourself to be, to be, I don't know, if you allow others to dictate to you, uh, or if you second guess yourself. Uh, you know, that's the one neat thing about writing is you can, you can, you can write another book. Uh, you can rewrite that other, you can rewrite the, the book that you aren't happy with. And, and also, you know, what works, you said it yourself, what works for you with one book may not work with, what work for you with another. And there's another aspect I'm noticing, you know, now that I've been writing since I was a, ki- a little kid, and I've been professionally writing for about 20 years, and I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago on many levels. And I stuff that I, I used to do, I, I don't, I don't, I don't operate that anymore, uh, that way anymore. So uh, I think that's a great observation. I think it's important, you know, that we we toss it out there, you know, uh, periodically. It's just, you know, you have to. Nobody can tell you that outlining is the way to go. It may be the way to go for you. Uh, the second observation is, I was just going to say one thing about Lionel. You know a lot about Coleridge, although not obviously not everything. Uh, I've never, ever, you know, in the first book, Lionel mentions a little bit about what happened to him after he got out of the military. But you don't know where he comes from. Like, he'll occasionally make sort of like vague references. But I, I have intentionally, uh, you don't know whether, he, you know, you really don't know much about him outside of just sort of vague comments that he, that he's made. And that's something I've intentionally engineered. I don't, I don't think you need to know. I think, I think guessing is good enough with him. 
I think so too. And I, I think it's so strong as a character too, because he's, you know, he's garrulous. He, he talks, he's not the, you know, the cliche, like I'm not speaking because of my wounded past. You know, he talks all the time, but, and so it takes a little while to realize that he's not speaking anything of past substance. Um, so to, I mean, to me, that just, that just rings very true. Well, you know, so, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, cause he's dark. I actually, my, my theory about, cause I'm still learning stuff about him is that he's the scary one of the two. Um, there's a not to spoil anything, but I, I am I am you know here's the deal is Cole is initially I drew these guys big broad archetypes that was a hundred percent I didn't want to quite go meta but the first book was very much intention you know the intention was this is what it is and it, it's following a very well trod path and a very established venerable tradition and I'm going to put a spin on it I'm not reinventing anything. And of course, you know, as the books go by, then yeah, now I now I'm doing more and more of my own thing. But Lionel, I, I talked about this last year when I was on the road, is that Lionel, if you just and I don't blame anybody uh, for, for making this assumption, but he really does come off as almost like a cliche initially. He's the wounded veteran who's has PTSD and he's and he's he's an alcoholic and all that. Uh, and so the assumption obviously is. Coleridge makes it. Oh, you know, he's he's the, his his military service, you know, has really damaged him. But there's a scene, you know, but that see that allows me to set up if people stick with it, it allows me to set up the counterpunch. And that is Lionel just looks at him like he's an idiot at one point, kind of pitifully, and just says, "No, I went. I I, I was already a drinker before I went. I was already essentially <laughs> had all kinds of wounds, psychological wounds. I was never happier than when I was over there shooting people." You know, in warfare. And so, you know, put that in your pipe and smoke it and wonder what, how you feel about him. <laughs> I constantly want to unbalance, because one of the things that I noticed, and, I, and I'm using this, is when I went into the um, marketing meeting for the original book and was pitching, you know, what the second one would be about, there were, uh, I was the only guy in the room, and they were all, all the, all the, you know, the editors, the president of the company was there briefly, uh, the marketing uh personnel publicity and they all to a person loved lionel and were like kind of swooning over lionel a little bit which hey job done great but i i just nodded and said okay this is interesting and i have worked very hard since then though i don't want to say punish anyone for basically objectifying him and kind of you know want to want to kind of be like a care bear kind of thing about him but he's not who you think he is and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying he's evil. I'm just saying he's a man, and he's not, you know, the cliche that I set him out, set him up to be. And now I'm able to to kind of pull the pull the, the tablecloth out from under uh, all the drinks, and hopefully they they remain standing. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, you and do I, an I, interesting thing there too. Sorry, Rich, go ahead. I, no, I, you're you're good. No, I went first last time. Go. <laughs> No, I was just going to say that's kind of like an interesting point, like what all the stuff Laurel said kind of about Lionel and that, you know, he doesn't need to like talk about his past. But there, it set up like a really cool scene that I thought um, I think it was just even like one sentence where he kind of like references like the people who raised him. Yeah. And, and Coleridge is like, you know, my ears perked up. 
and you know they've always been kind of close you know throughout the series um and i i thought that that part there like that he perked up like it just kind of shows like even though it wasn't really much wasn't really much it kind of shows you know like how much they trust each other and stuff like that and i thought it was cool but also how lionel i think at one point you know asks him you know like would you say you know me pretty well and coleridge is like yeah and he's like you never really you know know somebody's full story so i thought like that all tied in pretty good and i really love that part of it well laurel you know thank you and she said a minute ago about him being garrulous i'm like i've known people the thing is he's based on on certain people I've known. I mean, everybody, you know, I think we all do that as writers, but, you know, I, I have to cop to it. You know, he, he's modeled on about three people that I've, you know, I've known. And there are some people who are really garrulous, really open, but they're not open at all. Like they just, you know, you, you think you've heard their story and then you realize when you start analyzing it and you don't, because why would you? But if you sit down and you start analyzing, you're like, wait, he didn't tell me shit. I don't know anything really. He just, you know, and in this case, I remember the point you're talking to the point you made, you know, he he's talking about people who raised him and Coleridge says something, Wow, your parents are like dicks. He goes, I didn't talk about the people who raised me. <laughs> you know, and that was all that was his comment. It was like, No, I didn't, I didn't say anything about my parents. So uh, I don't know. I just I like Lionel. I really like Lionel. He's he's the second string character though. I mean the, the the book is the books are about about Coleridge and Coleridge is may or may not be a reliable narrator, but I, I do enjoy the that I can kind of flatten or round the various characters in Lionel, you know, as I need to. And Lionel's fun to occasionally make a round character. And, uh, and, and, and I think surprise people because people just want to think what they think about him and uh, which is not wrong or, or anything bad. It's just that, that I'm playing a kind of a long game with him and I'm, I'm kind of chuckling as it, as it plays out. Yeah, we've talked about that a little bit offline, and I won't go any farther than that, but that was what I was going to bring up, was the, uh, um, when we had uh, Hank Early and Ian Pasarczyk on, one of the things that we commented a lot to them about was um, their supporting characters, because they were so three-dimensional and so real and so sympathetic, and I mean, most like you like you said most uh pulp you know serial series like that um there's basically stereotypes for the most part you know and these guys come in and they look like stereotypes and then you start making us know them and you realize there there's no real true stereotype here just in the appearance of one well i i, I want to say take a break here for a second and say um, Hank Early is a really great writer. I'm, I'm, uh, I can't say we're, we're friends because I mean, we're friends. Like we, we've met online a few times, so I like him and all that, but I just, you know, I consider him a, a boon comrade in this business and, uh, somebody that I really have grown to admire as a writer, uh, because I knew, you know, uh, I mean, I think most people know that's, you know, it's, it's man too. And I, I knew him as man too earlier on when he was writing yeah. horror, horror, and you know he can do uh, shoebox uh, train wreck. That is a fabulous, fabulous collection. And less, you know, he's always been. Uh, if there's magic, it's almost like magic realism. But there's just this 
there's a strain of terror that he can evoke when he wants to. But his, I think that his power is that he seemingly effortlessly, and I'm sure it's very hard. Uh, if it's effortless, it's probably that means it's, it's difficult. But he really just he really just draws characters so well, and so there's so much empathy. You may not sympathize, but you but, but you understand where they're coming from. You can see their point of view. And I love his, you know, I love this new uh, mystery series that, that he's been working on. And, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't really have a point to make outside the fact that I, he is somebody I don't talk enough about, I, uh, but I highly admire him. I think that he's, you know, I think he's somebody that's really doing the good work uh, in the field. And we're we're in full alignment with that. But that's the, you know, the thing is, is that I think... Uh, you're you're managing to pull your series together right up there with him though so you know i i have read all of those i've read all of yours although i still need to finish the last of worse angels um and i wouldn't i if someone said which one of them's better i'd say read both of them because i don't know yeah so i think it's another of those examples i'm really i think i think we all are we're in a field where even when we're working like almost on the same patch of land, we're doing, we're planting something different. There's just no, you know, what he does and what I do are only superficially, uh, you know, uh, similar. It's same thing with me and John Langan, you know, uh, somebody that I'm very close to, you know, we're both horror writers. We both tend to write long stuff, but, and we write weird horror, you know, in our short fiction, it's all weird horror. And, um, but we couldn't be more, couldn't be more different i think the whole field you can kind of just go through the whole field and and see that that even when we're doing tackling similar themes or or subjects or whatever uh there's just such a variety of approach and result and i'm so i so i just look at it like you know this is a this is a this is a wonderful wonderful aspect to my career is that i share it with people and yet we all have something different to offer yeah yeah and it's uh um I don't remember now. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, so, yeah, Laird, I know, too, um, the last time you were on, we kind of talked about, you know, setting and, like, New York as a state and, like, how a lot of crime fiction, like, it's New York City and not really these other areas. And I know that you had said you were going to do horse heads and, you know, it's not necessarily a literal depiction of it. But, um, like, I've been through that area quite a bit, and I thought you just really kind of captured the feel of that place, you know, because it is, it's, like, set, like, in a valley, and, you know, it's kind of, you know, some of those areas, it's kind of, like, almost like a clash of, like, urban and rural, and I feel like you just really captured, like, that atmosphere of that place, and I was just curious, you know, if you had, you know, visited out there, um, like during the course of your writing process, because like I knew you said it wasn't going to be like actually, you know, horse heads, but I feel like you really captured the feeling of that place. I did not, I did not make it there. And um, for various reasons I intended to. And so what I did, I would have taken great liberties anyway. I mean, there's just, it'd be almost impossible to find a geographically you know, in the state to find the exact dimensions of, I even looked at maps and stuff, trying to like, plotted out but one thing i did do is i talked to people who lived over there 
during and after, like it was still in editing, but like I had written it and I started talking to different people uh, and who, who, who have experience. Like one of them was a surveyor who surveyed through there. They were all, you know, by descriptions, according to them, were, were really good. And the other thing that I did is obviously I read a lot about it. Like I read a lot of first-hand accounts of people who have lived there like in the last 20 years. But I also, um, I found drone footage, like people who have like several hours of, you, you, you can go to YouTube and find like a bunch of videos of people flying their drones all around um, the valley uh, there. And uh, I want to say some of the, I'm trying to think what, the, there was another city nearby that they were flying out of. And so I was able to kind of, you know, make it till I make it essentially. But ultimately because I was creating such a, a creepy, almost singular kind of a place. I really didn't want it to be a hundred percent of a match anyway. So I wasn't that I'm not, yeah. you know, I, I, I just felt like I, I really need to take some poetic license with it anyhow, because I didn't, I don't want to cast aspersions on anybody. It's just that it's a, you know, in the story, it's a very dark place. But then I start, and historically it is, uh, the history of the, of the slaughter of the horses and some of the other stuff that went on around there. But then when I start talking to people who, either live there or live nearby and spent a lot of time there. They're like, Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was really cool. And like, there was some, uh, like certain parts in there. Um, you know, like I think about like, you know, the legends of that area. And I was just wondering, you know, how much of like that sort of stuff, you know, was, you know, your artistic license versus, you know, like actual stuff from that area. The uh, I can't really be too detailed because I want to because I actually think this might give too much away. So uh-huh. I'm gonna say about 99% of everything about the legends and the creepier stuff is mm-hmm. wholly full. I just I just said this is what I'm gonna write. This is creepy. Uh, but I will say this is won't hurt anything. Anything to do with the um, the legend of the horses heads, like the like you know why they call it that the the, the um, you know, the general who went through and, and, and basically that's all taken from historical record. So, 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 so yeah, so the kind of the basis for why it might be creepy is, is historical, but the other 98% is stuff that I, uh, concocted. Hey, uh, sorry, since my brain's so sketchy and I'm going to forget this, uh, let's, uh, taken aside briefly and talk about this uh this band man vitzgar sudan that's how i pronounce it i say it's uh yeah vitzgar sudan yeah um, they're from from what i understand they're from uh they're from la or they're based out of la but uh yeah i don't even know really how to describe the music i mean i've been listening to a, uh, another band called the church of the cosmic skull which kind of reminds me of them but it's I don't. I want to say drug rock because that's not quite right either. But it's kind of psychedelic mixed with metal, and it's uh, yeah. you know a, definitely a strong horror component. But not in, you know a lot of times when a band does horror, uh, I feel this way about poetry too, uh, is that they they kind of go too far into the horror, like the the, the not how should I put this kind of uh, campy. No, this is just there, there's a dark. I think some of the subjects are, are kind of horrific, but it's just, it's more metaphysical and more, um, just more sinister. And I really, I really, um, enjoyed it. And what happened is, uh, one of the band members, uh, one of the lead, one of the leads in the band, the lead guitarist or bass player actually, and does vocals, 
uh, Martin Garner uh, approached me and uh, you know that he said that he you know I, I don't know if other members of the band are but that that my work had been a, an influence on him he really enjoyed you know my short fiction and stuff and asked if I would you know listen you know because he, he had seen I think he had you know I think he had seen that I had talked about liking Les Mord and and some of that kind of music and I said heck yeah sure but you know I didn't I, you know I don't know him uh, it's a new band so I had no idea what I was getting into it might might be terrible and I started listening to it I just went oh wow this is this is fantastic and so uh, when they, they they went live today the album went live and they gave me a you know I gave them a I gave them a quote uh, you know that I've been listening to the music and loving it to use on their site and uh, they gave me a few codes and I to download the full album and so I, I gave those away on on Twitter earlier but the response has really been excellent you know because it's, it's definitely a niche I mean uh, you know uh, genre and so uh, the response was really good everybody you know I, I do have a lot of musicians who who are mutuals on on Twitter uh, and that which is really cool and uh, I've actually at this point had a few bands that have you know uh, written songs based on uh, my stories and so I you know, I'm, I'm friends with a lot, of, a lot, a lot of people, relatively speaking, and so some of them were coming forward, going, "Hey, this is fantastic!" And um, I know that you, you know, you, know, you, you listen to their YouTube, the song they have on YouTube, and you liked it, so it's. Yeah. I wish them all the best. You know, I, you know, obviously they have a, they, they won their way into my heart just by, you know, liking my work, but, um, you know, on top of that, they're just they're absolutely fabulous. Right. So. And yeah, I spun through the rest of that today. Um, it just was irresistible to me. And it's kind of like you nailed it with that. Uh, I I was thinking of it like kind of like psychedelic metal symphony, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's it's it's edgy, but it's not. It, it's it's soft in places. And I was just gonna say that Dawn of the Monolith is my favorite of the of the album. <laughs> Oh, I would have to listen to it a few more times to decide which one was, because it's kind of that first experience is kind of like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, you know, over and over and over again. So you kind of forget which one had the most impact. No, but thanks for thanks for bringing that up. I I uh, like I said, you know, I, I get asked to listen or read a lot of stuff. And, you know, I just a lot of times I just can't I mean, to the point where I just cannot do it uh for various reasons a lot of times it's exhausted and just don't have the time to focus on it but um and just the, you know and you can only do so much anyway but this was a pleasure this was a no-brainer i had to after i listened to the first couple you know and then they gave me the rest of them to listen to i was like oh yeah this is something people you know i love it like i said uh, in my in my quote i was talking about it, it's on top of my playlist and i i was going to talk about it like uh over a month ago but i decided that i'll wait until you know, they, they that basically there's something to talk about for everybody to check out. Because what I was listening to was stuff that wasn't open to the public, as far as I know. So, um, yeah, wonderful, and I I, I, I really wish them a lot of success. I think they will be actually. I do too, and yeah, it's a uh, Vitzkar Sudan. Everybody listening, um, go check it out. You'll love it. Um, and uh, I'll I'll let us segue on to talking about Laird Barron some more. I'm I'm glad you brought that up though because that's I I mean I feel kind of silly but I didn't really know that was a subgenre of music was something that was sort of horror based and now I'm terribly excited so 
Oh, and oh. Laurel, I, before we go any further, I, I apologize if I accidentally, because I'm sitting here second-guessing myself, if I re- refer to you as Lauren. Uh, we have two really good friends uh, named Lauren, and so I'm used to I'm used to oh, going no. Lauren. So I, I apologize if I did that. No, so, you uh, you have not, but I'm okay. I am extremely used okay. to it. In any case, I I mean, who names me Laurel? You know that doesn't right. I think it's that's wonderful. just I just, is asking for trouble. <laughs> it's a cool name, yeah. Oh, but Laird. yeah, Lard. But um, no, or Laid or something. I, I I live in I live in paranoia, so I I'm sitting there going, oh god, I hope I didn't do that. Oh, I'm no. so used to talking to her. So, but anyway, it would roll right past her though, because it's like she said, I see it in tweets and stuff all the time. Oh, tell Lauren we want her to read it too. And it's like, <laughs> who's oh, that? Hey, I will. Let's see Laird's friend. <laughs> yeah, that's Laid's Laid's friend, huh? Oh, you know the Laid friend. That is kind of funny. I my second story that was professionally published was in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction back in uh, the end of it was I think officially 2003, but I got it in 2002 and Gordon Van Gelder was the owner editor at the time. And he always does. He always did a intro, you know, right above the story, you get a few lines about the author and something pithy usually. And um, he introduced me as laid, Laid Baron, that was a typo. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, that's, that's a, you know, that's a collector's item for sure. So, <laughs> what a glorious start to my career. Got Absolutely. It. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, so, and sometimes, yeah, names can uh, stab you in the back, even when they don't seem like they're all that suggestive of anything, you know, because it's like, like my brother-in-law's last name is Hoff. And he was bowling with some buddies, and he lost to one of the other guys, lost a bet. And the guy starts yelling, I beat Hoff! I beat Hoff! <laughs> like, uh, dude, oh, tone that have... shit down. Yeah, in public. Um, well, I've mentioned this before, uh, but it's been long enough. I'll go ahead and just mention it again. I'm a big fan of the late great uh, Carl Carl Edward Wagner. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but he's he was yes. a he was a major editor, very similar to Ellen Datlow's stature. You know, he did his year's best horror fantasy. I don't know if it was fantasy and horror, just horror. I, I used to read him when I was younger. I can't remember quite the title, but you know, he that's what he did. He was a great writer. He did uh, Sticks. That's one of the ones he's the most famous for. River of Night Streaming. Just this genius. Just this genius, and he was a big old guy. From where I never got to meet him, and he passed away like in the 90s. And um, so I never met him, but I certainly have admired his writing for many, many years. I was reading, you know, his stuff and the stuff that he edited long before I was paying attention to who who was who. And uh, so I got John Peelan, who was a friend of his, and from what I understand, is an editor publisher. He and a group of a group of you know, comrades, they, after Wagner had died, they did kind of like a collected works, uh, and they were spent a lot of money. It was a, you know, it's not going to sell a lot of copies, but they just sunk everything into it. It was like a deluxe collector's thing. And they put all this work into it, you know, forward, afterward, the whole thing. And the boxes showed up and they had like, uh, you know, like a little party to unbox the books. And when they opened it up, it's this beautiful book. It's full of all these great stories, typo-free intros, typo-free a- afterwards. 
but the but the printer had messed up and it said <laughs> Carl Edward Wanger. <laughs> and they were just like sitting there, right? Like, you know, just what do you say? They're just staring at this. And then I forget who who what it was, but one of them just started cracking up going you know, if Wagner was there looking over their shoulder, he was laughing his ass off. He would have, because he was this big profane dude, from what I understand, you know, like a Viking almost. And he would have thought that was the funniest goddamn thing that he had ever heard, which made me like him all the more. I was just like, that's, that's pretty awesome. Really? And that, uh, I agree with you just briefly, wholeheartedly about everything you said about Wagner. Um, I'm glad you read him. Yeah. Yeah. I devoured everything I could. Yeah, so he's that's a little the, bit obviously go ahead i was just gonna say that's that's a fabulous legacy like i really hope that when i die there's something that brings people that much laughter that's fantastic but yeah go ahead i'm sorry he, well, he, oh no not at all he you know i don't know a ton about him i read um an essay by one of his confidants a few years ago it was on the internet somewhere and it was difficult to read it's one of those deals on a website and it's ten thousand words long and one long paragraph kind of a thing very small but He's just fascinating. You know, he worked he worked at a hospital. You know, he's one of those he's one of those guys that just sort of for a long for some part of his life he just rambled around and he, he reminds me of Lucius Shepard, you know, just a lot of a big kind of physically intimidating guy who got up to a lot of hijinks. Uh you know, and uh just someone that just someone that was colorful and probably deserves a you know, a biography. Uh but his his work as a as an editor and his work as a writer are just, I think are very important. And I, like I said, I don't assume anybody knows who he is because he never had this giant out of the, out of our neck of the woods status, you know, he, but within, within this neck of the wood, everybody, you know, should know who he is. And, uh, I, I, like I said, he's, he's a little bit of a, I have to say he's a mild influence on me. And I say mild only because I didn't start really deeply reading him or studying him outside of just accidentally uh, when I was young until, you know, like say 10, 12 years ago, I wrote a, I wrote an afterword for um, Centipede Press, which just does, does great work. They did a two, a two volume omnibus of his fiction. And, you know, I was able to revisit all that stuff and then, and then write a piece about him. And I was really, I was really proud to, but he's, he is somebody, you know, over the last 10 years is in my mind when I write, um, He's he's unique, you know. There's not. He, he kind of does the same thing that Michael Shea and I've tried to do, where he'll take something that's okay. This is venerable. This is you know. This is tradition. This is sort of like I won't say a formula, but this is you know. You know what to expect out of this kind of a story, and then <clears throat> invert it. You know, Sorry. Do, he would do something to that story. I've always thought that Martin Scorsese is another one of those people that does stuff like that. Quentin Tarantino to some yeah. degree. These people who, there's musicians who do this, they'll take, they'll lull you in with something that's easily digestible, easy, you, because you're familiar with it. But then they do something to it. Maybe they do a bunch of things to it. And I've always felt like Carl Edward Wagner was one of those guys that, you know, if you just read him on the surface, you just, you know, okay, he's a, a pulpy, you know, basically horror writer. But if you understand the genre, if you have any you know, familiarity with the genre, you quickly realize, no, this is, you know, especially back then, he was doing something that was, you know, Trans- generous yeah. in some ways. 
transcendent. Yeah, really. absolutely. Um, and you keep mentioning uh, favorite authors. You also mentioned Lucius Shepard in there. Yeah. Um, can, may I? Uh, the reason I bring him up is because um, your style doesn't remind me of him, but I have to say that if I were going to compare you to someone for sheer eloquence, uh, I'd call that cat right right up. You know, um, and you know, to, as a point, may I, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a very very small section. Um, sure. And it's for and it's from the it's from the ark. So if it's messed up, correct me. Um, Nature is everything plotted to a gnat's ass. Her vast blueprint overwhelms our ability to fully comprehend the true shape of reality. We glimpse points of intersection. We hear phantom notes on a cool autumn breeze, but seldom apprehend the greater symphony at play. Um, I just, that's all through this fucking book, and every time it's just a wow, you know? I mean, your turns of phrase are, um, captivating, you know, mesmerizing to me, and that, that kind of, that's the part of you that reminds me a lot of Lucius Shepard. Oh, well, thank you. Lucius, you know, I can't, I can't claim him as a big influence because... I didn't really start reading him until after I'd already sort of established myself. I mean, I was aware of him. I probably had read a little bit when he first hit the scene in the 80s. But I actually started really reading him around, like, the early aughts, maybe 2005, 2006. He had this sort of renaissance where he was publishing uh, with Alan Datlow at Sci Fiction. And he had those just beautiful novellas there, you know, like Jailwise and Ambivigic and things like that. And, you know, as time went on, obviously, I started reading him more and more and more. He's, I mean, he is at times ubiquitous. Um, he's one of those guys that disappears for a while to go have adventures and comes back and writes for a year and writes 12 stories. You know, he's just, and four and five of them are novellas and a short novel also, you know, and he's just, yeah, he's he's somebody that, another Sue Generous you, you can see that he's influenced. I think he talked about that uh, probably very freely, openly. You know, very much influenced by European writers, but also South American writers. I want to say Borges is somebody. I, I personally like Borges as well, so maybe that's just me, you know, projecting that. But I, I, I know that he liked uh, Milano and guys like that. And, and, of course, he spent a lot of time there. And so he has this sort of dismissiveness as, as his career went on, this dismissiveness toward the, the constrictions of, you know, you can only have a paragraph be so long or sentences should be short or whatever. He just did what the hell he wanted to do. And yep. he was really, I think, very, I won't say unparalleled because there are some really great authors. Peter Strau, we were talking about earlier, was one of them who can do this. But... For most people, he's for most writers, he'll never parallel his ability to um, turn a phrase and it, and to do it over and over and over and over again. To do oh. it, to do it in in Twitter or in and uh, he wasn't on Twitter, but like on Facebook, he just you know or in the message boards yeah. when he felt like it, when he was feeling bellicose, he would start ranting about something, and he's just off the cuff. And I was told by many people who knew him, this is how he he was in person. He's 
this big garrulous guy who has the the eloquence of uh, any poet uh, worth, worth their salt. And I became friends with him. Uh, I one of my great regrets is not meeting Roger Zelazny before he died. Another one is that I that I lived a couple hours away from Lucius and we had a plan for me to drive up there in Portland. I was living in Olympia and hang out. And, uh, I got, I got super sick and I was sick and then other things, you know, and my life happened. And then he, he moved or I moved and, uh, maybe both moved, but it just didn't come to fruition. And I really, I have to say, I really regret that. But, but even so I talked to him enough over the years, you know, probably, at least eight, nine years, I spoke with him, you know, frequently. And uh, I don't know, I felt like he's a, a kindred a kindred spirit. The other thing I'll say about him is that he he was a really generous person. He, um, as a writer especially, it can be competitive. Lucius was really supportive. Lu- Lucius, um, you know, was really, really nice and really supportive about my about my writing, even from the beginning, you know, within the first couple of years, Lu- Lucius had my back, uh, and I, I, I uh, remember him fondly. Yeah, what an experience that would have been to meet that guy. He's got such a, had such a um, interesting mind, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I bought a bottle of I can't remember what it was. I remember talking to him. I said, all right, went out and bought a bottle, and the plan was just to go crash on on his couch in Portland and uh, just chat. And, uh, and then I got, I got walking pneumonia a couple days later and it never, you know, and then one thing, I, you know, life just said, no, this is what happened. Life just said, no. That's too yeah. Bad. Yeah. I always wanted to meet the guy cause I, I live in Portland, but it just never, never was in the cards. I never had the guts, you know, I hadn't started doing what I do now and hadn't built up that skin, you know? So I, I hear you. I know, and he was on the surface. He's intimidating, and yet he would have been happy to, to try, chat with you. You've been very kind. Um, yeah, I'm. That's uh, it's sounding like that from you and everybody I've talked to about him. So it's good to care. It's good to leave that kind of legacy of, behind you. That hey, not only is this a great writer, but it's also a great person. Yeah, I, I agree, and. Uh, Everybody, you know, I went to KGB, which is the um, the bar, and uh, it's a hole-in-the-wall kind of bar there in New York City, and Ellen Datlow and Matt Kressel and others have that reading that reading series once a month, once a month on Wednesday, and we did a, we did like a memorial reading, like a wake almost for Lucius, and uh, there was a bunch of us there. Uh, there. There were, you know, and that's the thing, the place was, the place was just it's always crowded, but it was just packed. It was literally, there was people out in the hallway and there was just, it was, it went on for hours. I mean, the people talking about Lucius and I, I don't know. I'm, I, it doesn't matter to you when you're gone unless, you know, unless you believe that you linger. Uh, it was a comment, you know, or thought that I had is that luckily I, I knew that he had been kind of in, in poor feeling poorly about a year before he passed away. And, I just kicked myself in the ass and wrote, um, I wrote an essay. Just, a, it was just an appreciation, you know, it's probably 600 words or something, you know, it's just, it was just an essay thanking Lucius for and acknowledging that Lucius had done what, what he had done in the field and, and that it was important. And I'm glad I am so damn glad that I did. 
because it wasn't like oh I you know he's he was I thought that he was going to pass away any second. It was more just I remind myself John Lang and I talk about this. You need to tell people, you know, write writers. You need like if you really like a writer, tell them tell them you like their work. Don't wait. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, right, that's the trivial, that's the trait thing. I mean, always tell people you love, but I don't know how often I have said, my friends have said, oh, I wish I would have told so-and-so I liked him, you know? And so I, I'm guilty. And I, luckily, Michael Shea and Lucius Shepard are a couple people. But William, Willem Hop, uh, Hopfrog Pugmire, I didn't really write an essay about him, but I, yeah. I, I've done, like, a bunch of appreciations for him. And I'm just like, I'm so grateful, yeah, thankful that I did because... People need to hear this stuff. The weight doesn't do you any good. No, and that's the thing, too, is the weight is that, like, just very, very, very shortly before he passed, I uh, messaged um, Dallas Mayer uh, and, tol- and told him what a god I thought he was, basically, you know. And I would have severely, severely regretted never having done that. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, There's time is short. <laughs> Time is short, and if you have a pulpit, you know, right? Yeah. Everybody here, we, we're writers, and we're you know, and or hosts. Uh, it, we have the ability to. It's not just reminiscing at a bar, not to knock that, but we actually have the ability to say, to write something or to record something uh, that other people will will get to will get to see. Um, and I think that's important. I do too. I think you're right, and and I think it's it's the very rare you know, artist of any kind who is not appreciative of hearing that, you know, I mean, people think that, I guess that if, you know, if you get to a certain level, you're, you're just ignoring the masses. But I think, I think it's hard to get to a point where you're not, you know, questioning things and at least really appreciative of getting that kind of support and knowing that you're, you know, you're really making a difference to readers. I agree. I I think that the only, you know, I've only had a taste of this. Um, but you do, you know, I think that some of the, the people who are uh, more popular, have populist, you know, they have a big a big following. One of the reasons that they withdraw, I think the main reason, you know, and obviously it won't be true for all of them, but I think for a lot of people, it just gets exhausting. Uh, there have been times where I've completely left, you know, and I only have a tiny cult following compared to somebody, you know, uh, you know, like, like somebody who had bestseller success, for example, not, I'm not even talking about Stephen King, but just people that, you know, maybe a couple rungs under that. But they, they, Peter Straub is a good example, not to say that this is anything he's ever done, because he was been around. He predates all the social media stuff. But the point is, is that you get to a certain point where, you know, you're just exhausted. You're exhausted all the time. Uh, and it's not just because you have boatloads of fan letters or emails or whatever. It's just there's a, you know, it's just so hard to interact with with, with so many so many people all the time. And, and and also, the more people you interact with, the vast majority are going to be really positive. But it's kind of like if you're working, you know, at, at some kind of a job where you, you meet and greet the public all day. It only takes a couple out of the hundred that you meet in a day to basically, you know, make you want to quit your job. And I, I, I do think that that's, you know, that happens with some of the, you know, with some of the more successful people, whatever the field is, but definitely in writing. I think it just gets hard. There's also the fact that, you know, if you're a decent person, you also feel kind of guilty that you can't keep up anymore. You know, when your friends list jumps up into the thousands and it's all those birthdays and all those, you know, congratulating people on their successes. 
the stuff that was easy to do when uh, you know nobody knew who you were or, or yeah. just a few did. It really, it really, it, it's not a matter of you're too good for it. Absolutely not. It's just that you don't. There's so. What's that saying in The Hobbit? I feel like a piece like butter spread over too much toast. That really is a thing. And um, and so I give people the benefit of the doubt when they kind of achieve success and start sort of distancing themselves because I do realize that some of them are probably just jerks, of course, but the vast majority are just are just defending themselves to some degree. And I try to I try to think of it that way as they're just trying to keep a keep body and soul together, keep yeah. the sanity. Yeah. yeah, and and it's a hard it's a hard emotional um, task, you know. If you decide to take on being a writer, you're not taking on glamour, you know. People will think so, but at least for me, a lot of times it hurts like hell. <laughs> you you know, I gotta tell you guys something. This is something I I kind of came up with the other day. I was I was talking to Jessica M, my significant other, and just very important part of my life. Uh, I don't mean just, you know, as a partner romantically or whatever, but just an important person, support person, uh, somebody there for me. And we were, you know, I can bounce ideas off her and things like that. And I just, I, um, you know, like I said, the quarantine doesn't affect me in a practical sense. It's more, I just, I'm, I'm weeping watching the world burn. You know, I feel empathy for what's going on to everyone, you know, but practically speaking, you know, my life, I'm, I'm back to I'm changing the type or the, the keyboard every day. That's just what I do. That's what I did long before this. But one of the things that like somebody asked me, I said, well, what are you watching lately? And I realized that because of all my deadlines that I have, you know, especially with the book coming out, you know, my, the demand of my time right now is, is peaking. And, um, and so I have all these sort of infrastructure things I have to do to try to make sure that I, you know, I write the interviews and, and, and do all the stuff that needs to be done. And it's, it's good, really going to be crescendoing next week. But I haven't watched uh, a whole lot of co- – I haven't coherently watched things. Like I watch bits and pieces. But I, I, I realized something that I've been doing now for a couple of years. Uh, I watch boxing, like old boxing matches. Uh, by old, I mean anything from the 70s or up, up until like 2000 or so. Uh, especially stuff, though, that I, that I watched when I was younger. Uh, and, and I am a very, very devoted fan to boxing in general. I'm not a – I'm not an expert or anything like that, but I, I grew up with boxing when boxing was one of the major events. When, when Muhammad Ali would fight or Larry Holmes would fight or Hagler or Hearns, that yeah. was a big deal. Even in Alaska, even in the woods. Yep. I, you know, the AM radio, they would be, if, if you were lucky, they'd be playing, you know, they would have it on the radio type of thing. And yeah, so my, I'm kind of, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, my bad. All I meant to say is, and this is about, you know, it kind of ties into, um, how like in, like uh, inspiration or how we deal with things i have been watching uh at least once or twice a day i'll watch a fight and what i realize is that it really has influenced my um not my writing style but like just it's 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 almost like uh, a component of my of of of, of, of my personality now when i write uh in the past, I have said, and I still think it's true a lot of the time, that for me, writing is like uh, sitting at a shortwave radio and trying to interpret uh, signals in the static. In other words, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm translating. I'm not inventing it. I'm translating uh, and trying to get this coherent message down for the reader. 
but the other, but the way that start, the thing that's starting to take over the last few years has become more and more so, is I'll notice that when I'm done writing, and it doesn't have to be some melodramatic scene, it doesn't have to be a particularly uh, exciting scene, I'll come out of the office covered in sweat. I, I, I will literally have sweat dripping, you know, out of my hair. And, and, and Katie bar the door if I'm writing like some kind of a tent scene or a combat scene or something. And so what I realized is what I'm taking away from boxing is the obvious. There's a, there's a scene in Worse Angels where Coleridge, you know, it's one of those digressions where he talks about boxing. And I, I concluded it, though, not because of anything other than I thought that it illuminated his character more. But that's the obvious, you know, inspiration that boxing would give me. Or you write about it. No, that's not the deeper, that's not the deeper value that I have gained from watching boxing. What gets me about boxing, especially these 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 these, these epic struggles that you you can see, uh, is the journey that occurs from round one to round fifteen. People change in those. Um, especially the ones that go that go 12 or more rounds against evenly matched opponents. People change. People occasionally are broken down and rebuilt. You, yep. there, is, there is a journey that occurs. And I'm going to tell you, man, it's something I want to... I, I almost said it on Twitter, but I'll probably have Coleridge make the observation. I watched the last round of Holmes when he took away Ken Norton's title in 1979. And those two men at the end of that fight were so tired they yeah. could, when they were throwing punches, their arms were at their sides, right? And you would watch them lean forward and throw their body so their arm would come up. They were using their body. They weren't yep. putting their body into it. They couldn't lift their arms. And they hit each other so many times that last round. And those were blows that would have knocked out any normal person. Yeah. And at the end of the fight, it was a split. They're standing. They literally were being held up by their people. People were crushed, crushing them, the press of the crowd. And they were both being held up, and their heads were down. Neither were smiling. They were trembling. You could see their legs trembling. And steam was rising from them. They, were, they had exerted everything. And, I, and if, I guarantee you, if you were standing near them, you wouldn't smell sweat. You would smell alkaline. You would smell a burning battery. That's what happens when you're that tired. Your yeah. body burns. Chemicals burn in your, you know, in your system. And I was welling up. I'm watching this, and I... I you know, this is 42 years old, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually so invested. I mean, I knew how it was going to turn out, but I'd never seen that last round before. The camera was really close up to Norton's face, and they announced, they were going back and forth between him and Holmes, close-ups. And it was 143, 142 for Holmes, 143, 142 for Norton, and the deciding vote, 143, 142 Holmes. When that was announced, the camera happened to be just you could just see Norton's nose and his cheekbones, part of his nose, his cheekbones, and his eyes. I swear to you, he looked like someone. It was very brief, but it looked like someone had punched him in the stomach. I cried. Yeah, I bet, man. That was a hell of a fight, you know. Well, I, I, yeah. I didn't see the very end of that fight, but it was brutal, and you can't imagine exactly what it's like to be beat by someone that big, you know. So. Imagine two guys beating on each other like that for 15 rounds, you know? Well, they just weren't the same men at the end. And from what I understand, Norton was never the same after that. But he, you know, 
it, it could have gone the other way just easily. Uh, the, the people announcing were a bunch of veterans, and they didn't, you know, they had no idea who won. And it just the emotion, the emotion that boiled off him. I could see it for, I could see it through time. I mean, he's a ghost. He, he he's gone. Uh, it it was it was pain, the, the pain, and I could feel the pain. But it was deeper than that. This was just this. The, the point being is that there's just there's a journey that takes place in. In, in that kind of a, a conflict, and it's not just the savage beating that people are administering. You listen to the coroners; they're they're like uh, air traffic controllers, and they're saying they're telling him, "You need to remember this. You need to remember that. You need to keep your left up. You're dropping your left." And it's it's so calm, and 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 yet the guy is so alone. You know, I that that's the thing is that those men are alone in there. This this is a, there was eighteen or twenty thousand people crowded around him. And they each had their 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 their, their um, trainers and their and their coaches with them, but they're alone. They are alone. That's what happens when you die. You're alone. You don't care how many people are, are around you. And I just realized that part of the reason though that gets me about what gets me about boxing and how I use it for my writing is that I look at writing as um, especially when I'm writing novellas or uh, novels is that it's a um, conflict. I'm. I am. It's obviously not the same stakes as if I were in a ring getting punched, but it's. It, it, I do look at it uh, as a physical, sort of, sort of a mental, physical, grappling session, sparring session with, with, with whatever it is I'm wrestling with, and that's, and that's why I have been able to, I've been so attracted to, to boxing last couple of years because it's not about just the the hoorah of the sport and who gets knocked out. Uh, there's something for me. There's just there is just something else going on there that I can that I identify with, and and I think is transcends sport. It's 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 something to do with the human spirit that I I can't articulate it, but I'm trying to figure out how how to bottle it. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Just kind of like the uh, like the endurance that those guys you know show throughout like you said those fights like to be able to make it that far and just you know push through no matter what i could see how that would relate to you know like writing because everyone has you know like you said it's not the same as you know taking a beating in the ring like physically but you know everyone has those days where they kind of you know wrestle with you know their process or their writing and stuff like that absolutely and I think I think we could all probably attest to the fact that a lot of times it comes down to endurance and just gutting it out. Uh, and so that's a lesson that I'm taking from athletes, not just boxers, but all kinds of athletes. I, I always have felt that my writing has been enriched far more by intradiscipline or cross-discipline um, stuff than the actual – reading uh you know horror or whatever it is i'm writing i mean there's value in all of that obviously but i i feel yeah. like i've gotten some of my most useful value from watching how artists sculpt or how boxers box or how how rowers do their thing i mean it's, it's not always a physical thing either it could be it could be something like you know how do musicians craft albums or something but i just i i have found and i cannot articulate it to my satisfaction, but I have just found that a lot of times my brightest gems that I've picked up out of the rough have had nothing to do with the discipline of writing. They've been something that 
um, intuitively it's completely not related to that. Yeah, that that's a pretty that's a pretty interesting, you know, idea and like we kind of talked about this the other day and Shane would probably have better insights into it than me, but kind of like when we were talking yesterday to, you know, Josh Mellerman about Carpenter's Farm and kind of like all the different elements around that, like I I found that interesting kind of like you said how you know, you could take something from other disciplines like music or, you know, other forms of art or even sports or, you know, stuff that's not even related to writing. Because a lot of times that's what you kind of hear is, you know, seeking that inspiration just in reading and writing and stuff. So I've always been interested when I hear writers say that, you know, they're influenced by stuff that doesn't necessarily have to do with writing. Right. Um, yeah. And you can you can fall into that vibe too. And it just becomes kind of a thing that you're doing without even really thinking about anymore. You know, if you're, um, if you're kind of adjacently working with someone and you're all just right on this certain wavelength, you know, and not even talking, but, uh, somehow getting the job done better than you would have had you planned it. Right. <laughs> But it was, yeah, that was that experience with the Carpenter's Farm was that we had a musician on it. We had a poet on it. We had Josh writing the novel. Um, John Skip wrote some music. Uh, Michael Bailey wrote a couple stories. So, and, you know, so we all kind of just riffed off of each other and it turned out really good. No, I've been, I, I haven't sat down and read it yet, but it's pretty, because I have a chance to just want to see everything. I don't know if it, is it done now. Are you guys finished? Yeah, it's over. All right, so I need to I need to get with it then. We're doing it again next year, though. Harper's Farm, the return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have you don't have to wait for that one to jump on this one though. It's good. No, I'm looking forward to. It. I thought it was a great idea. I like the the collaborative nature of it. I think that's pretty neat. That's one thing I haven't done yet that I um, it's kind of on. I won't say a bucket list, but. It's, it's definitely on my list is I, I want to do a um, collaboration with, let's say, John Lang. And we've talked about doing that for a long time. And I, I really he's not the only one I would like to work with, but he's the only one I'll, I'll mention for now. But that's something that I would like to do. Yeah. That would oh, rock. Be, yes, it would. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, read his novel, The uh, Fisherman, for the first time a couple oh, yeah. months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that book. No, you know, listen, I'm biased. He's my friend, so buyer beware. But I, part of the reason that, you know, I have a lot of friends now, and I have other close friends too, and I, you know, uh, that alone won't won't get me to sing your praises. Um, and the bottom line is John's one of the very best that we have working right now. Agreed. You know, I'm not going to list an extensive list because it's just not, it's not fair, and I would forget people, but I'll just, like, list three people, and he'd be one of them. Stephen Graham Jones is another. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Olivia Llewellyn. I'll just I'll just stick with those three because let me just tell you, I've done this many a time. I've listed people you should read. Uh, I I figure there's at least a hundred, um, and I'm nitpicky. For for me, there's a there's there's a hundred or maybe a little over a hundred, and these are people that I have read. I know that I have not read everyone that I should, but there's at least there's roughly a hundred to 110, 120 people that I think actively are just you know in our field are are rocking it. I know that sounds like a lot to somebody who doesn't follow things, but 
you nah. figure out of the entire wider horror field fantasy science fiction that's that's really not that big a number but it but it's more than you're going to be able to keep up with reading and so so in other words i just named those three but there are you know a lot but not others that i could have listed but i I do think though i will i will say this john no matter how many people i mentioned john deserves to be in that top very top of the group i agree he's, he's one of that you know top dozen writers that i just think uh, for me, there's just no arguing it. The guy is consistent. He now has a body of work that's, you know, it's it's fairly. I won't say large, but it's definitely it's definitely not modest anymore. And I also know that he has several books worth of stories and other things that haven't come out yet. So he's, you know, he, he's really really active. And um, I dearly love him. But part of the reason I love him is because I admire just how good a writer he is. Um, yeah, like you say, I mean, I, I've always trusted you with your recommendations, even if you are friends with somebody, because I know you to a degree, and I know that there's no way you're going to say, yeah, this book is great if it sucks, you know, um, be, I mean, not only because you're not that kind of person, but also because um, that that's your reputation when people start reading these people you're recommending going, God, these guys all suck, you know? <laughs> No, you know, not everybody agrees with me, but no. I, I've had people be sad. But generally speaking, uh, you know, whether it's writers or, or music or whatever, people come to kind of trust that, you know, I'm earnest and I don't, you know, I, 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 I think it's good and I have decent taste. So, like I said, man, I like I said, my top, you know, my top three would be uh, it would change tomorrow, but you, you just can't take anything away from Livia or. Steven or John, they're, and they're all, and part of the reason I, I just tossed those three out is because you could, how different could they be and yet still plowing this, you know, tilling the same field? How different could they be? Yeah, and that's three very, very different authors, but as you say, three of the best who are working right now. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones is one of those authors I have you to thank for. Lots of them, actually. Ballingrud, Evans, Evanson. Yep. Um, yeah. Well, so. you, you know, and, and, and since you're doing it, I just can comment. I mean, there, you just named, you know, two or three more that are in my top dozen or so. I, you know, that I, I, I try to be objective. You know, I'm like, no, you know, who if you were going to be, if, if you know, if somebody were paying you money to list this group, and it was like, it's going to be judged on some kind of formula some mathematical formula i just i do think that those are some of the very best top very top tier writers and they're once again they're all different they're all uh you know they all have their own thing that they bring to the horror weird fiction genres yeah yeah i agree with you um and it's it fascinates me no we're in a good you know we're in a very good place like i said you know you start listening to those names and Weird fiction. There are a lot of heavy hitters now. I think ten years, twenty years from now, we'll look back on the aughts through the. I mean, but basically, the last fifteen years, we're going to look at this and go, "Yeah, this was this was a good this was a good time." Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think uh, there will come a time when we'll look back on this kind of like we look back on the seventies and eighties now. I think even before there was a real label on things. I honestly think we have, you know, and I'm not going to 
embarrass myself or anyone else by, by, by saying who I think they are, but I do sincerely believe that uh, you're right about what you just said, but I think it goes even further. I think we have uh, our Blackwoods and Mockins and Clark Ashton Smiths and Lovecrafts going right now. We I do. Think, I, I don't think we necessarily know, can say who they all are, but there's, there, and we may even have more than that. And, and, and none of them, and maybe better, I mean, maybe objectively better. I think we have MR. I think we have our MR James going. I I really think that this is um, this is that good, uh, and we're and we're gonna you know because because really gives a lot of credit to you know Mocking and Blackwood. I've read a decent amount. I would put somebody like Ballingrude against those guys. I would put Stephen Graham Jones against them. And you know it's apples and oranges, right? Which makes it hard to to qualitatively or quantitatively make an assessment. But you know when I just look at impact and impact while they're alive and, and and there's a fracture of the reading you know the the the, the market for reading is is so it's so stratified or fractured um that that people are even having any success today that aren't bestsellers should tell you enough right there if, if you're talking about somebody frequently then there's somebody that you're going to you know that, that's going to have some kind of a legacy and i i really do think that we have people of the caliber of aikman and uh yeah, I mean, if nobody else, would be Ligotti. But we do have people that can buy. You can never replace those people. I would never suggest that. It's not a contest in that manner. I'm just saying we have people, I think, that are going to leave that kind of a mark, indelible mark on the field. Uh, and they're and they're in their prime, a lot of them. I agree. And I think it's, I don't, it just was, it made me smile so much when you said a few minutes ago, you know, that you could name like 100 or so people that, you know, that you really admired or that you thought were just really killing it. And it's like, I just remember shortly before kind of finding this whole horror community that I had this sad little list of authors that I, <laughs> that I read and just, you know, waiting for them to come out with something every year because I just didn't know. I, I just didn't have enough access to, to all of this. And now I just feel like I'm, you know, I'm just rolling around and it's fantastic. It is wonderful, isn't it? And it, it helps your own writing. Because I'm, Absolutely. I, I don't know how you, maybe you tell me how you feel, but I'm uh, an ecstasy of influence rather than, you know, worrying about being influenced. I I do not worry. I'm at a point in my life where I don't worry about, oh, it sounds too much like somebody because that would only mean like, oh, my God, it's not just me. I get so sick of my own voice. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> right. I mean, so you're, you're just a situation where. You should just be rolling around, you know, in this stuff. That's that's wonderful. Absolutely. Well, yeah, because I mean, I was a reader before I was a writer, and you know, it's it's just like when I first started looking at this stuff, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like Haley Piper is a is an author that I, you know, she has so many different ideas that are so out there, and I just sort of think like, oh my gosh, you know, how does anyone even get there? But I'm recognizing slowly. That as I immerse myself, it's like it's because when you read all these different things, you you train your brain to kind of think around those same corners. Well, and yeah, are, well, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, this is yeah, go ahead. Guy. I was going to ask you. All right. So who are obviously you name one, but who are three authors off the top of your head that I may not be reading that I should be reading right now that you've like, discovered, you know, in the last few years? Um. Uh, well, like I just said, Haley Piper, uh, sure. she, yeah, she's, uh, she's got just a, just a plethora of short stories, but also, um, a couple of novellas and her first novels coming out, I think in August, 
Um, nice. I would start with the with the possession of Natalie Glasgow. It is it's a possession story unlike anything I've ever read. It's it's just amazing. Um, okay. Yep. Yeah, and then uh, S. H. Cooper also is. I mean, she's uh, her her collection of um, uh, from Twisted Roots. It's just, I mean, short stories are so interesting to me too because I started on the opposite end of the spectrum. I wrote a novel. I had never written a short story, and uh, it is it's a it's a very different art form. And I'm always in awe of people who have these collections of short stories, you know, because I'm like, what, you know, where do you come up with all these ideas? And, and um, you know, she's another one that's really excellent. And also uh, Rich and Shane will back me up on this. We we all read um, uh, Caitlin Starling's The Luminous Dead. I don't know if you picked that up. I've heard of it. Uh, I've not read it. Beautiful. Yeah, it, yeah. Cooper, I'd not heard of. I heard of Haley Piper. uh so Cooper's a new one for me. I appreciate that. Uh, Samantha Kolyesnik, I would add to her. Yes, three. yes, yes, yes. Uh, she wrote a novella called True Crime from Grindhouse, I think. And, What's the last name? Um, Kolyesnik, but it's spelled K-O-L-E-S-N-I-K. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Got it. All right. All right. All right. Yeah, she's amazing, man. I think, she, I think she'll blow your mind. Yeah, I, I still can't believe that's the debut. She's uh, she's incredible. And she's also she's the one who started Off Limits Press, who is putting out my novella that's coming out in August. And um, she has just been an absolute dream of a publisher to work with. Well, your your stuff, I haven't I have not delved into your work. And this is something I'm going to correct. But I've been hearing nothing but good things. I I, is your novel because you have at least one novel out. I was remember I read the first couple pages of it on Amazon. I had to go check it out. is it crime horror or how would you, how would you, um, I is like mystery, but maybe with a real horror edge to it or something. It's, uh, I think that the, the term we came up with is paranormal police procedural, maybe. No, that's, no, that's, that's, that's okay. <coughs> and is that your, is that, do you have other novels or is that, is that your, is that that's, your novel at this point? That's yeah, that's that's the only one that's out at this point. I've got um, the one short story that went up on Ink Heist this week. I've got another couple of shorts coming out in the next like year or so. And then the novella coming out in August. You, so, yeah, you, you basically hit the scene like yeah. I mean, as far as publishing yeah. the novel fairly recently. Like when did that come out? Cause I've been hearing about you a lot. Uh, it I was not run across your name before. And so I'm like, all right. It's it was 2018. It was uh, December 2018. Yeah, that's, so essentially, I'm publishing like yesterday. Okay. I've been hearing like lots, lots of stuff. Lots of people are saying like really positive things. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and it's yeah. totally legit, Laird. That's. No, uh, I read the. I read the first. Uh, I read the first. You, know, I get, you get the preview. No, it's yeah. obviously I had to read the whole thing, but I mean I'm just. Oh. You know, it's good stuff. Yeah, and because all, all all the things that everybody are saying about her are so so true, um, I feel guilty I did not say. Oh, and Laurel. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here's the, here's the problem too is that I read, um, for the World Fantasy Award, what I guess three years ago now, four years ago, was, I can't remember. It was you know recently, and then I read and. I think 2011 and 2012 I read for the Shirley's. And so I read a lot and I always do anyway, but, and I, and I just, you know, it embarrasses me when I haven't read every, I I just can't. And this is, this is another example though. There is, I had not heard of S.H. Cooper 
I mean, maybe I have, and I just don't know, but I, Haley Piper, but I haven't read Haley's stuff yet. There is, this is the point when I said there's a hundred, there's not a hundred, there's way more than that. What, what I'm, you know, what I'm trying to get at is a hundred that I can just off the top of my head think of. Uh, I mean, I, you know, this is just, and I will, I will say this, a lot of women have, are making inroads uh, into the horror weird fiction community, like more consistently publishing stuff. And I think that's nothing but good. Yes, Yes, it is. I think you're I think you're really it's so true, though, because I feel almost like the, you know, the the authors that you follow and support regularly, that can get limited to in the same way that a social media presence and an ability to respond to can. That's right. Because, you know, it's like you have your it's not like, you know, I despise the idea of clicks where you're just like, oh, well, you know, I've got my 10 girls here that we all hang with and we read each other's stories. And it's not about that, but it is about past a certain point. I can't commit to reading absolutely everything that comes across, you know, that sounds fantastic. Um, And, you know, nobody should feel guilty about that. I, you know, I think it's great, you know, if we read and discover something that we shout it from the rooftops, but if not everyone can get to it, then not everyone can get to it. It, You know, we, we do eventually have to write our own stuff, but. Well, one, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's obviously you can't, but I, I still, I get a twinge because I just, it's like in the crime field, you know, I'm a, there are so many modern or contemporary, I should say, crime writers I cannot get to. It took me 20 years to get to where I am to be whatever knowledgeable, you know, level of knowledge I have uh, in my, you know, in my, in the field that I've been pursuing all these years. I mean, I, I'm exhausted uh, trying to keep up with the, 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 or get a, a foothold, an idea of what's going on, you know, with contemporary crime. I mean, I'm, I'm doing, I'm working my butt off, but it's just, it's a huge commitment. Every genre is a major commitment if you really want to be well read in it. And you can't just read one novel by somebody. You aren't really, you really don't know somebody unless you've read multiple novels by them, you know, or, or collections or whatever. It's, it's a, it's an onerous task. But I will say this: Jessica works um, at a library, and she, she reads in, you know, in my field quite a, our field quite a bit. But she also reads lots of YA and just stuff that you know, isn't on my radar every day. And so, and she reads like ruthlessly and relentlessly, like during, during the quarantine, you know, she's uh, getting like three books a weekend, four books a weekend. And so she just is, is just like, fills me in on all kinds of stuff. I, I quiz her, you know, periodically, okay, what are you reading? Who are the, you know, who are the people that if I were going to read one, one author right now, who should I, who should I pick up to read? And that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I, I do like being with a reader that really provides yes, someone who yes. just and, and a and a and a um you know she she's she's an omnivore when it comes to reading. She loves yeah. Jeff Ford and she doesn't have a problem with Rick you know Reardon you know and I'm like that's pretty amazing because I'm I'm much more like I like Jeff Ford. <laughs> <laughs> I think that yeah I I mean I'm not saying that that relationships can't be perfectly happy if you aren't both readers but I will say it's. Yes, when I met my husband, I he was the first guy that I'd been on a date with that like he had books all over his house. And I was just thrilled because it's like, okay, then he's not joking. He really does read. And, you know, he was just so excited that I was looking at all the books on his shelves. So, you know, it was it was a nerd love story immediately. It was meant and, to be. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what happened to me. That's kind of it was similar. You know, she works at a library. She, that, that's it, not even her major job. That's just and that's why we're kind of it's kind of tough, but, um, you know, the bottom line is, is that I was pretty thrilled that, uh, 
you know, to be going out with a reader, like a, like a, like a heavy reader, not yes. just somebody who reads a few books a year, but like, no, hardcore. She reads more than I, than I do. And then I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My husband reads, um, very esoteric. Uh, he reads almost no fiction. He's read none of anything I've written and that's okay. <laughs> but, but it's, it's just cool because the kind of ideas that, that he brings to it sometimes that he passes on, I just think it's, Oh yeah, um, you know I could I can only imagine because that's what a wellspring, right? I mean, most of my ideas come from true, like we were talking about at the top of the show, you know, true crime or historical or just nonfiction, esoteric nonfiction stuff. That's where you get your that's where you get your good your best ideas. You don't get it from reading other horror writers. That's fine, but that you should be getting your ideas from you know whatever uh, is outside that. And I think this this sounds like you've got your little pipeline now. Yeah. Yeah. He brings some interesting, well, actually I didn't think about this rich and shame, but a uh, silent key, the one that God may never sell. That's okay. But uh, <laughs> David was the one that brought me the initial idea for that one. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it definitely is. I, I think that's, I think that's it, it. It's a shared love that is, you know, even if you're not reading the same things, you're, you're valuing that time to do so. Right. Kindred spirits. Absolutely. Yeah, my my wife is that way, too. She reads a lot. She gives me my time when I need it. Um, She does sometimes see me sitting here writing as a sign that I'm asking someone to talk to. (laughs) But but for the most part, yeah, same thing. Kindred spirits. I think that's impossible not to, though. I think it's... (laughs) I think I remember one vacation. This was, you know, pre pre toddler, but my husband and I used to take these sort of like writing and reading vacations. And I think once I finished a whole novel there during the space of a week, but it's like it'd be eight o'clock and he'd be like, Do you want to have dinner? And I'm like, No, go away. I'm writing. It's, you know, I'm not I'm I'm not on vacation with you. I'm on vacation with this book. So <laughs> <laughs> No kidding. <laughs> You know, fortunately, my wife understands that, though. If I say, honey, I'm writing, I can't really talk right now, she will go, oh, okay, I'll talk to you later. But I, <laughs> but I don't like to do that. You know how I am about saying no or anything to anybody. I guess sign to hang around our necks. Do not disturb. Currently writing. Save that. It's not easy being married or the significant other of a writer. I, I, I'm sure, I'm not sure, but... You could probably pull all the writers that you've had on here. Uh, and I think a lot of them would say that that it's just if they were being honest, it's not easy. They're not easy to be to, to be around sometimes. Uh, and I think it's good not necessarily to have two writers. I don't know how that would work, but <laughs> I just think it's a there's a certain level of sacrifice that occurs, and it's different for everybody. But if someone's on a schedule, especially like I've been on a schedule for years now, where even when I'm not on a deadline, I'm on a deadline. And I think that's a tough, I think that can be really, really tough. And you start listening to, I was listening to stories. I went and visited Peter Straub a few years ago. John and I went and, and, and got this, a tour of his, his brownstone in New York. And, you know, the best part, though, was that he was just shared a few details of his when he was coming up through the, the ranks and when he had, you know, was writing like Ghost Story and stuff like that. And and then you you know you hear similar stories from Neil Gaiman about what it was like you know when he was trying to write middle of the night and stuff like that. Uh, I just think it's 
it becomes a it depends on how much you put your of yourself that you devote to your writing but at some point it does become um it's very difficult you know people and people accommodate it's not i'm not saying it's like there's some kind of martyrdom to it or that there's some kind of horrible thing it's just but it is something to keep in mind that it that you really have to have the right person who understands because you're not making it easy all the time yeah i agree with that um especially like with me, I kind of got into a frenzy right when this whole thing started, this pandemic and stuff. And it, I, I probably write to a fault. I sit here and write so often. So, yeah, I know I'm not easy to live with, and I've been bitchy, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I know we're we're kind of getting to the two hour mark. Um, is there anything else that you guys want to talk about? Oh wow, I didn't. Time flies when you're talking to Lair Baron people. It definitely does, but I I worry about Rebecca getting to yeah. eat dinner. That's yeah, my <laughs> that is, that is uh, going to become a problem for me soon. <laughs> <laughs> we need to we need to be fed regularly, or are we yep. we get anchored? <laughs> hey, I'm I'm there too. I put off dinner. My schedule's really weird, my sleep schedule, and so I was kind of ready for dinner, but it would have been right about the time this was starting, so uh, I will I will feed myself when we're done. Yeah. Um, I'm, I think I pretty much covered it. Uh, the book comes out uh, Tuesday, uh, correct? Yep, the 26th, yep. Okay, so as you're listening to this, uh, you can buy that sucker, and you most definitely should. Worse Angels. Um but yeah, I th- it's been great talking to you. It's always great talking to you, and no doubt, probably before next year is over, we'll be talking to you again. Um, and yep, anybody else? No, I I appreciate you coming on. It was really great getting a chance to talk to you in person. Likewise. Rich, you still there? Sounds like we lost Rich. So yeah, Rich feels the same exact way. <laughs> um. I'm certain of it. Uh, it was um, nice. It was nice speaking with Rich too. I, I enjoyed my time on with you guys. It's great to chat about the biz. It is, and and you're very very interesting to chat with. Your insights are amazing. Um, but we will let you go, and we will talk to you as soon as we possibly can. All right, you guys. Uh, thanks for having me on, and um, stay safe. All right, take it easy, Laird. Thanks. Have a good evening.